Hello and welcome to Conspiracy Games and Counter Games, season two of The Order of Unmanageable Risks, a podcast about capitalism and its anxieties. My name is Aris Komporoso Safanasiu, and I'm an associate professor of sociology at University College London. And I'm Adam Kingsmith, a PhD candidate in the Department of Politics at York University. This season, our podcast is dedicated to going beyond the headlines and the easy answers and exploring the rise of conspiracies, conspiracy theories, and conspiratorial thinking in a gamified capitalist world. And my name is Max Haven. I'm Canada Research Chair in Culture, Media, and Social Justice at Lakehead University in Thunder Bay, Canada. And it's my great pleasure to welcome this week Arun Kundani, who is a well-known writer on racial capitalism, Islamophobia, surveillance, political violence, and Black radical movements. Welcome. Uh, Thanks for having me. Uh, Good to be here. Arun is author of a number of excellent books, including The Muslims Are Coming, with an exclamation mark, Islamophobia, Extremism, and the Domestic War on Terror, which came out from Verso in 2014, and The End of Tolerance, Racism in the 21st Century, in 21st Century Britain, which came out from Pluto in 2007, and has been working recently on helping us untangle the entanglements of race and neoliberalism. Um, So... In our our podcast, in thinking about conspiratorialism, uh, your name was really top of mind for me, thinking about the incredible success of conspiracy fantasies and conspiracy theories about that that revolve around Islamophobia. And I suppose I wanted to begin with the recent uh, announcement by uh, the President of the United States, Joe Biden, that he would be uh, allegedly at least wrapping up the his nation's involvement in Afghanistan now 20 years after the launch of the the war on terror and beyond the particular sort of geopolitics and motivations of Biden's announcement I I wanted to maybe just take a moment with you to reflect back on how much has changed uh and also how much hasn't changed in the last 20 years of that war on terror what what do you see as having been the kind of broad arc of Islamophobia over that period and where are we now in terms of its sort of uh, place within the U.S. empire and its place globally? I mean, right now we're in we're in a sort of transitional moment, uh, not just because we've got a new administration, but but I think the the kind of the mobilizing power of um, the war on terror has more or less run its course um, from its, you know, from its kind of heyday um 15 years or so ago that is, that isn't to say that that the infrastructure of of the war on terror isn't going to continue to exist i mean you know there's still you know military operations being carried out in dozens of countries um under the rubric of the war on terror all the you know all the laws that were passed are still going to remain on the statute books uh the racisms that were generated are still going to float around but i think the the trump won the 2016 election in part by mobilizing Islamophobia. You know, the Brexit vote in Britain in 2016 was in part involved mobilizing Islamophobia. But at that time, it was still powerful enough to achieve those political effects. But you'll notice that last year's US presidential election, there, there wasn't really anything about Muslims. So, so I think Trump was its apophosis, the height and vanishing point of, of that particular kind of mobilizing power. What's happening is now, you know, you can see within the national security establishment in, in DC, it's one of those moments where various forces try to mobilize a new kind of narrative of what the what the priorities of, of national security should be for the United States. And some people, well, pretty much everyone, let's face it, is talking about China. Um, and, and um, you know, some people are talking about the far right. 
and uh, and so on and we're going to experience that kind of collective amnesia where the two decades of the war on terror which you know let's let's just take a moment to talk about what that what that record is you know that's about to be forgotten it's a record of probably over a million people needlessly killed by the uh, by the united states in um wars that had no basis in any kind of necessity or legal justification you know many millions displaced the you know kind of re-legitimization of torture the thing that i keep coming back to and i can't i can't quite get over it is how that has been possible right that that it's been possible f- for the united states in the last 20 years to carry out a level of violence that is up there with the with the genocides of the 20th century in terms of the scale of it and no one's been held to account for this kind of industrial slaughter of the poor in the Middle East and in Africa and South Asia. You know, like the, the cheerleaders, the planners um, have simply been able to move on to their next gig. And so the only way we can explain how that has been possible is by thinking about the deep-seated dehumanization of the victims of the war on terror in their Muslimness, right? The racist dehumanization that's enabled it. Of course, that's not going to be something that is going to be acknowledged in conservative politics. But if liberal politics has failed to do so as well, I mean, you don't you don't see even the beginnings of a reckoning with that on, you know, in the New York Times or NPR, just to say that sentence that, you know, we've we've inflicted the deaths of probably over a million people through a racist program of mass violence, right? We haven't that sentence has not been acknowledged, right? We are in the midst of a of a kind of another one of of these kind of so-called national conversations on race, and and I'm hoping that that there might be a, a way that we can kind of push some of this reckoning in the direction of empire, and not just thinking about it as as a matter of domestic politics and the criminal legal system domestically, but also the violence that we inflict globally, uh, of which the war on terror has been the preeminent example in the recent past. So in terms of in terms of what that racism looks like, you know, that's that's kind of underpinned that. Obviously, there's a long history here that we, you know, that you could go back um, some time. You could certainly go back into the histories of European colonialism to kind of trace discourses of Islamophobia that look sometimes quite similar to, to stuff that we see more recently. But really, what we're talking about is something that emerged, I would say, in the, in the 1970s really in the aftermath of the so-called oil crisis of the early 70s, um, and then kind of intensifying after the Cold War. And and at its heart is the idea that there is something inherent to Islam, something inherent to Muslims that makes them prone to uh, some kind of barbaric violence, um, that they do not follow the rules of civility, uh, modernity, um, and so forth, right? And there's a lot that we can we can kind of unpack there but but essentially that's that's the trope that has run through this and then within that conspiracy theory has been central because and you know here there's a, an analogy that you can draw with anti-semitism which also you know historically conspiracy theory was central to anti-semitism as well and essentially you're, it's the idea that not only are muslims these kind of barbaric peasants um, from a kind of pre-modern world um, who have failed to adapt to modern values but also somehow they are secretly controlling the modern world that kind of contradiction runs through it just like it does with anti-semitism you know for anti-semites jews were were kind of an underclass but also secretly pulling the strings of finance and, and global revolution right so 
the Muslim is figured in the same way for Islamophobia today. You know, the reason for that is because if you seriously want to argue that Muslims are to blame for all of America's problems today, you need conspiracy theory, right? You need, like, you need to imagine that there's this hidden force um, that you can't see behind the corporations and behind the Wall Street and behind the, you know, the kind of forces of global governance. So that's why you keep coming back to, you know, reading people claiming that the State Department has already been infiltrated by the Muslim Brotherhood, that Obama is secretly a Muslim, that, you know, the, the European Union is, is a secret plot by Arab nations to dominate Europe and so on and so on. Mm-hmm. It, I mean, this week, we saw um, news that that several uh, retired and current officers and soldiers in the French military have been uh, reprimanded for sending a letter to uh, Macron claiming that there there was a high risk of civil war because uh, you know this arch neoliberal had uh, not because he'd sort of sold out the the country to corporate interests but because he was you know at risk of putting uh, France's civilizational values at risk uh, because of the influx of foreigners which was you know uh, coded as 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 Muslims as and and I think. This is the latest iteration of a long, a long line of um, conspiracy theories that have a strong history in France, but are also very popular around the world around the theory of the so-called Great Replacement, uh, which has recently been popularized by Tucker Carlson and other sort of populist far-right figures. Um, that seems to marry a number of the conspiracy conspiratorial beliefs. Uh, that you mentioned with this kind of strange biopolitical fascination with population levels uh, and the idea that uh, white populations, uh, as they're constructed in the imagination, are going to be replaced, that uh, multicultural policies are a form of like racial suicide that the white race is committing out of its own uh, misplaced benevolence. Uh, But this is, of course, proven extremely deadly, notably in the Christchurch massacre uh, the massacre in Quebec City uh, and a number of mass shooting incidents in the United States. What what should we make of this? Um, th- yeah, the the popularity of these theories of the Great Replacement and and they're increasingly the the mainstreaming of them. There is a kind of standard structure to conservative narratives that leads into outright fascist narratives that that has been around for a long time, right, through the 20th century at least, right, which is the idea that there is an elite that through its kind of naive cosmopolitan kind of liberal values is allowing the native people, however defined, you know, nationally, ethnically, racially, whatever, to be overrun in some way by, by um, forces from outside. That's essentially the pattern of, you know, Nazi ideology. It's the pattern of, of the far right in the you know, in Europe in the post-war period, they change the terms around a little from maybe overt racial language to something that's more cultural, but essentially it's the same structure. And the Great Replacement kind of fits in that tradition, right? Like it's not simply that the white race is is allowing itself to be overrun. It's a particular elite within that that has sold out on the true people and the genuine natives, the genuine um, bearers of, of the race, ethnicity or nation. You know, what we've seen over the last 10, 20 years or so is the proliferation of that narrative in you know lots of different forms that fit all kinds of different constituencies, right? You know, from the neo-Nazi end of the spectrum right across to um, you know, relatively mainstream figures like you know, even the novelist Martin Amis has dabbled in some of this stuff. 
very mainstream conservative figures. Um, and um, why it's proliferating right now is a complicated set of reasons. But the kind of key things that we can pull out here, I think, are one, there is a, a question of how do we make sense of the, the kind of collapse of the, of the neoliberal politics that, that Macron, as you just mentioned, represents. You know, that politics just simply doesn't bind people in the way that it did even in the 1990s. Um, and, and so in the vacuum that that's opened up, there are all kinds of people mobilizing to offer explanations for what's gone wrong, right? And so it offers, it does have that ability to tell you a story that seems at least to some people, a plausible account of, of what's gone wrong. Like why, you know, the story we were told in the 1990s was the Cold War is over, um, essentially, the Western model has has been victorious. The rest of the world is now gradually going to fold in and and subsume itself to Western liberal capitalist values. That isn't what's happened. Um, certainly, the the world is as capitalist as it was in the nineteen nineties. But capitalism is no longer a Western project, right? It's as a result of essentially the rise of Asia. It's been turned into a into a kind of multicultural project, and and so the idea of um, the West has has kind of lost its geopolitical power, its political power, its cultural power. It seems like that bound up with that has been a kind of hollowing out of the the kind of stable middle class lives that were possible even in the 1990s for many people. And so there's something that needs explaining, right? That the great replacement theory gives you a very simple story. I mean, I think the environmental part of this is huge for a lot of a lot of the proponents of this, right? The the world is ending, right? Is the is the kind of background. You know, we're destroying the planet. And and even though climate denialism is a big is a big part of conservative politics, that tends to go hand in hand with a kind of armed lifeboat um kind of idea of how to respond to that kind of what um Richard Seymour calls disaster nationalism. It's very closely bound up with that we can get into a lot of other aspects to it but for me those are the kind of key the key things right it, it's based on a real on real material changes that have taken place um in the kind of twilight of neoliberalism but but yeah the 2019 election in britain you know um you had you had a, a great illustration of, of that right with the labor party um narrative completely focused on you know here are the here are the material benefits that we're going to provide for you if we come into if we if we form a government right um and nothing and nothing about um uh who the electorate is and how it might think of who it is and the conservatives kind of kind of doing every nothing about about anything they're going to give you really but entirely focused on an idea that we are making Brexit work. We're we're no longer going to be Europeans. We're going to be this new idea of Britishness, and just beneath the surface, a kind of casting of the Labour Party as somehow betraying a sense of Britishness, uh, both through its its occasional invoking of a of a politics of rejoining the EU, but also just as importantly, um, through the image of Jeremy Corbyn and somehow this figure who's too close to foreign influence, whether that's, you know, the accusation that he's somehow sympathetic to Muslim extremism or his his kind of um, support for the Irish Republican politics or his, you know, kind of sense that somehow he's he's somehow affiliated to communism, portrayed as, as something um, un-English, right? That tells you that, 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 you know, that kind of move is politically powerful. 
I don't think that the answer is um, for us to say, um, you know, that, that these questions of identity are simply a distraction. You know, we do need to tell a story about who we are. Um, the left, I don't think the left can abandon that, that terrain. Our story about who we are is just not going to be a story that says, you know, we can say that there is a culture that is fixed kind of timelessly and and is um, defining over people and somehow that culture underpins their politics. The left story is going to be a story that says who we are is, is going to be always changing over time with uh, the possibilities of who we might be are unlimited, right? And who we are is going to be a product of our encounters with others, whether, whether we're thinking about that uh, for ourselves as individuals or as local communities or as you know, larger entities of regions, nations, whatever it is, classes even, right? What the conservative idea of identity is always trying to do is close off that possibility of the encounter with the other, right? And and imagine that the, uh, the role of the other is simply to be eliminated or to assimilate into who we are, right? Which basically removes any any possibility of a genuine interaction, right? And, and that's why it's narcissism, to think that the other can only be a mirror uh, of who you are. And ultimately, that's how you destroy a culture. I mean, cultures cultures live through their their contact with others. Hmm. I guess I'm I'm. It's. I was thinking along the along the lines we we're just talking about now. Uh, more. So how do we start from um, a critique of conspiracy, which uh, uh, sort of points to the. Um, so uh, when we look when we look at is Islamophobia and, and, and racism and, and the kind of conspiratorialism that underpins underpins those, uh, how can we respond and how can we sort of um, uh, how can we mount a defense and an, an attack, if you like, against those without resorting to a critique of those conspiracies as simply irrational or unfounded or they're not based on facts? Uh, you see what I mean? I mean, this is this is a a matter of you know the long term strategies that we've developed on the left for dealing with the far right. We learned that sh lesson surely a long time ago. There there are going to be some people that you can win over by talking to them, but the center of gravity of the struggle against the far right is is going to be two things: one, having to physically confront them. Um, in our communities, right, um, to remove them, their power on the streets, and two, addressing the underlying social and economic drivers of that gives right to, gives rise to the far right. You know, it's not simply a matter of um, economic inequality. That includes the state racisms that are, in a way, the the material basis for um, uh, a lot of Islamophobic and racist ideology. The idea that um, you know the the idea that that the um, white people of the United States are are being overrun by immigration from across the southern border, that they are being replaced in the workforce culturally, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera, that's not something that emerges simply from from the far right and then kind of confronts a more sensible politics in the mainstream. That derives its plausibility precisely because that's the message that Republican and Democrat politicians have been putting forward in a slightly more 
but sometimes in a more uh, polite way since you know since uh, for a long time since at least the 1990s you know like it's a bipartisan consensus if we're going to fight this stuff if we just if we just kind of focus on the far right and not the state and uh, the broader political economy that underpins it um we won't we won't make any progress at all um, that's an old that's an old lesson i mean that's the that's the stuff that we learned in the anti-fascist movement, um, you know, at least half a century ago, if not earlier. Yeah, I, I think what you've what you've explained to us, I think, so well here has been the way that these um, these conspiracy theories or conspiracy fantasies and the forms of racism that they're that they're kind of enmeshed with are deeply entangled with the material uh, changes of global capitalism. And I'm curious then about how. Um, and especially Islamophobia has gone global as that system's gone global, as you've, as you've mentioned, like you were speaking earlier about how capitalism is no longer purely the bastion of the so-called West, but is in fact, uh, now there are many Asian nations and Asian uh, corporations that are very powerful here. And I'm curious about then how at the same time, we also see a kind of globalization of Islamophobia in new ways as well. And I'm thinking here about the way that uh, some have argued that China has taken up the war on terror uh, since 2001 to sort of um, uh, address the what they perceive as their their Uyghur uh, situation, the incredible success of uh, Modi and Hindu nationalism in India, um, the persecution of Rohingya in in Burma, Myanmar, uh, Sri Lanka. It seems that this Islamophobia may be taking its cue from the American war on terror, at least taking its legitimation from the American war on terror, has spread globally. Yeah, what do you what do you make of that? I mean, so obviously in each of these countries, you know, there is a uh, a kind of colonial history that shapes uh, how these things. I mean, that's the backdrop for for thinking about what this looks like in a country like India, like the relationships between. Hindus and Muslims in India is is determined you know overwhelmingly by the colonial history but then overlaying on top of that is something new and distinctive that is a result of uh, the war on terror because what because what's what's happened is is that all of that that kind of ideological material that was generated in the aftermath of when uh, the early years of the war on terror became available to to conservative political forces in other parts of the world um, to reuse and recycle and you know it's like it's like that that way that you know MTV is a little different in each country that that it that it was broadcast you know like you adapt a, a global brand to the local circumstances right and and so that that's what's happened. I mean, that's the story in India, in, in Sri Lanka, in Myanmar, Thailand, China, and so on. If you look at what's happened in China, um, it's very clear that the all of the infrastructure that's been created around um, the oppression of, of Uyghurs in China it, it is, is essentially modelled on, on the war on terror. I mean, they there are bureaucrats in China who've literally... Um, read the same, you know, the, the, all the literature about Muslim extremism and radicalization that came out of the United States and Europe on the war on terror, looked at the policies of kind of counter-radicalization, counter-extremism, um, and so on, and, and basically implemented that. And the irony, of course, is that the very people who wrote all that material in the United States are now the ones kind of 
cheerleading a new narrative of China as as the, as the new global threat to the United States, and and citing what's happening in Uyghur as as the you know evidence of of the nefariousness of China, they condemn themselves by doing so. If you look at, at how this works ideologically, part of it is about the spaces that have been opened up digitally in social media for popularizing certain certain ideas of Islam that have come up through the war on terror. And, and I think if you know, if you kind of cut to the core of it, the way this plays out in in a lot of Asian countries or or even like um, Russia as well, is that Islam represents a kind of opposition to the West, right? It's the kind of clearest identity that that represents everything the West is not. If you are the new middle class in India, let's say, right? You, you know, you have a, a picture of India's future as not westernization, but a particular kind of modernization, right? That involves rise of India to a position of global standing, a kind of competitiveness in global markets, while preserving a, a certain idea of India's cultural distinctiveness, right? Then Islamophobia is, is kind of the perfect ideology for you, because what it offers you is a, is a way of, of telling a story of Islam becomes what we need to get rid of to be modern, with, you know, without that necessarily having to collapse into a simple story of westernization. In fact, the West represents a kind of idea of the kind of Obama idea of the West, of the West as the epitome of multicultural tolerance that would be too soft in its, in its um, treatment of Islam, right? So it's an alternative modernization that counters itself to the West within which Islamophobia then plays a role, ironically, of course, drawing on a very Western discourse of Islam. Right. And that, I think that's the story, certainly in India and, and um, uh, probably in Russia as well. So that the, the figure of the Muslim becomes the, the thing holding the nation back from an appropriate modernization process. I guess maybe as a, as a final question or, or thought is uh, in our project, we've been coming back to again and again, the way that um, conspiratorial thinking, we're thinking about it as a form of dangerous play, that it's in in addition to all of the horrifying things that it licenses and um, it does, it's also a kind of response to the forms of alienation and disconnection that people feel. Um, and that's not to defend it, but it is to say that on some level, um, it, uh, it, it fills a kind of void that's been left by the material circumstances of living in a world that's collapsing in many ways for people. And I've been coming back again to the, this uh, phrase by Auguste Babel about anti-Semitism that it's kind of the socialism of fools. It gives people a sense of cohesion and togetherness and a kind of we-ness um, that is not available within the kind of alienating and fragmenting uh, uh, logics of of capitalism, um, and maybe to come back to um, to Aris's point, and also the point that that you made earlier. You know, we have this challenge before us of something called a left um, to offer some kinds of alternatives to this, and we don't have recourse to the narcotic pleasures of essentialism. Where you know we say like, oh, you know, as you were pointing out, like this culture is rooted deeply in the fabric of uh, blood and soil, like all of these kind of fascist myths that have been so successful on the far right because they give people a sense of, of meaning. 
Um, so looking at the state of struggle today um, and the way in which people are fighting back against all of these systems, what sort of, uh, where, where do you take inspiration these days? Um, and where, where do you, what do you think are the sort of hopeful signs for coming up with um, both practices and narratives that fight back against the scourge of conspiratorialism and offer not only other political horizons, but also um, structures of feeling that people can kind of get into. So it's a bit of a long-winded question. <laughs> I, I don't think that, that we should concede uh, that there is something uh, of an advantage that the right has by their, their ability to deploy essentialism, whereas we, we turn away from it. I don't think essentialism is pleasurable. It's an anxious place to be because you're always having to ensure that the boundaries are maintained, right? You know, human beings are not essentialist creatures. Um, so you have to impose some artificial boundaries on ourselves to make essentialism work. And so you're always in a, in a place of nervousness. And conservatism is, is therefore very anxious, nervous politics, right? And so we on the left haven't done as good a job as we should be doing, talking about our unboundedness as a, alternative way of thinking about who we are right and our endless ability to to renew ourselves and to and to to through relationships with others through, and through mutuality to constantly grow as as individuals and as communities right and that you know that story is the story that we used to tell i think a little better in our liberation movements um uh it's a kind of it's a kind of mid-20th century story now it can feel like but actually i think that's our that should be the, the kind of bread and butter of how we engage with people that we're trying to win over. You know, there's something of that happening, I think, in the way that on the ground, a lot of people have responded over the last year or so to, you know, to the, the kind of crisis around, around the pandemic. And I mean, I derive optimism from the fact that in, you know, in the country where I live, the United States, you know, 15 million people were on the streets last summer. I mean, that, that hasn't happened in a long time here. And, and they're on the streets talking about the kind of things that are being demanded are, are beyond the kind of reforms, you know, the kind of straightforwardly reformist politics that, um, that has been dominant for most of my life. The thing that we're not doing, which I think we should be doing, is, is allowing ourselves to once again say what it means to be human, right? Like we've kind of got this, we've kind of got this longstanding taboo around around having any account of what it means to be human that we've had now for a few decades i think i mean for understandable reasons given the way that ideas of human nature are bound up with colonialism but at this point i think it's it's um something that has that has been imposed on us for from a kind of academic space that i don't think works anymore we need to be able to tell a story about who we are as human beings about our endless capacity to make ourselves again and the way that we do that as a species right in this moment when we when we when the planet is in danger you know as a place to live on when it's it's becoming clearer and clearer to more and more people that when you're dealing with something like like covid-19 it's it's meaningless to to try and think of it in terms of national boundaries i mean we need to have an answer to to conspiracy theories that isn't simply you're talking about the wrong thing we need to be able to also step into the terrain of conspiracy theories and, and have something to say about the things that, that, you know, the themes that are being raised there. And the key theme, the key theme really is, is identity. 
Uh, and so unless we can we can have an alternative there, we're, we're kind of going to lose. That seems like a very potent place to, to conclude. Uh, so I'll, I'll thank you for joining us. It's been a really fascinating conversation. Thank you for having me. Um, yeah, absolutely. I enjoyed it. What I loved so much about Arun's work is that he, he speaks a lot, I think, uh, just beneath the surface is the idea that like neoliberalism in and of itself is a, is, a grand, is a grand conspiracy. The idea that all of the racism that's prevalent in, in modern society and in our culture is just sort of like things that neoliber neoliberalism hasn't been able to eradicate, as opposed to like new logics that neoliberalism brings. You know, I think that was that's a really interesting point in his work and the kind of the fact that a lot of thinkers on on the left, especially try and find ways to sort of be like, well, yeah, the racism is like a hangover or a carryover or it's this thing that just hasn't quite been sort of fully dealt with yet. And I think uh, his point that it's like it's actually fully imbricated in the logic in this in again, in this tension of kind of like the magical other as like both fully dominating Western culture, just beneath the surface, all of these conspiracies, yet then also sort of incompetent and, and uh, a drain on society and how this tension can exist simultaneously, I think is a, is a really important point that I see reproduced constantly in, in the examples. So I, th I really enjoyed that, that, that part of his work. Yeah, and I, I think I agree with you, Adam. And I, I think I also really like the way in which, in the question about where, where does he think uh, hope lies and where, you know, what, what is the answer? Where do we see uh, the kind of in inspiring responses to Islamophobia and the kind of entanglement of Islamophobia with neoliberal capitalism that is so pervasive today? I really like the fact that Aaron didn't concede uh, to um, the superiority of the uh, a conspiratorial narrative um, that it in in that it, it doesn't he pointed out that ultimately that narrative might be effective perhaps in the sh short term but it's ultimately unstable and it's ultimately relying on something uh, that is it creates a lot of nervousness and anxiety in and of itself so it's not and I think that's really crucial here because then if we are, are to think about the counter conspiratorialism uh, of, of a progressive um, agenda, then I think there is a lot to do in uh, working within a space of um, un understanding and capitalizing on the, on the humanity, the question of humanity and being human, uh, uh, but, but, but also those um, joyful and pleasurable and playful elements that are uh, that come with it come come with that humanity um, and I think I think there is something about going beyond the sort of banality of also the neoliberal capitalist narrative of reason and control and and, and containment of, of those conspiratorial um, movements uh, that a progressive um, game of of, um, of conspiracy can tap on. So I think there are two. It, it can be a two pronged uh, sort of approach. That um, in Aaron's response, I, I I kept thinking that there is something in there that is quite useful for for helping us to think. Mm hmm. Mm hmm. I I too felt that that. Uh... 
yeah, where where we left things with Arun was very fruitful. Um, and it made me think about the connection between anxiety and pleasure, and that somehow um, these two things are are deeply connected. I mean, um, I think especially in the kind of Lacanian reading of Freud, these two things become very connected on some level in the sense that, you, you know, out of a particular set of anxieties come a particular set of pleasures. Like we tend to think about anxiety as always getting in the way of pleasure, as suspending pleasure, as, as preventing pleasure from coming to pass. But in fact, perhaps the anxieties that are that that emerge from the kind of conservative or reactionary worldviews that are constantly concerned with the fact that what is purported to be a stable, eternal, uh, righteous order is being threatened. Perhaps those anxieties give rise to or dispose people to particular kinds of pleasure that perhaps would not arise if the anxieties were otherwise. Um, and so it makes me think a little bit in terms of our, con our, our ongoing inquiries into um, if we can complicate um, our approach to thinking about, you know, conspiracy games, the, the socialism of fools, the ways in which, um, uh, in which conspiratorialism is a form of dangerous play, by thinking about very particularly how certain kinds of anxieties give rise to certain kinds of desires and certain kinds of pleasures. And maybe I would just close that by uh, winding it back and saying that I'm not actually sure at this moment whether I'm speaking about pleasure or desire. I think maybe both, that certain types of anxieties give rise to certain types of desires and certain anxieties give rise to certain types of pleasures. And those that triangle perhaps is a potent space to think about what people get from conspiratorialism, what rewards they're seeking, what punishments they're seeking, uh, and what sort of violences they're willing to inflict on themselves or on others. You've been listening to Conspiracy Games and Counter Games, season two of The Order of Unmanageable Risks, a podcast about capitalism and its anxieties. For more information about this podcast, to listen to other episodes, or to learn about the broader project of which it's a part, please visit www.conspiracy.games. <laughs>